It seems to me, as God would have it, that the scripture we will start with today in our next series is most applicable to you young men. It's a watershed in life when you graduate from high school. Nothing will ever be the same. And as I reflected upon this special time in your life, I thought about the world into which you are stepping. It is so vastly different from the world into which I stepped. Class of 69. That would have been 1969. <laughs> look ahead, look behind, you'll find none better than 69. My high school doesn't even exist anymore. That's how old I am. The world into which you're stepping. And my message to you through the scripture and into the scripture is the message for all of us who claim to be in Christ. I think we are entering in we are certainly entering into what I believe are the last of days, the end of days. And I believe that uh, God is working to separate the real from the false within Christendom. And in my lifetime, at least in the Western culture, I've never seen such a cultural and societal divide that faces the Christian today at any other time. It's never been this way. Government, the corporate world, even many within Christendom itself are not only proclaiming but displaying in behavior and action a rejection of God and His Word. Well, they won't last. Your gift today from the church was a Bible. I would challenge you gentlemen to immediately set upon a course with the goal of being, completing, reading that Bible all the way through from the first of it to the last of it until you're through with it. And I'll tell you this. If it doesn't change your life for the better and move you closer to God, if it has no effect upon you at all, 
then an angel from heaven cannot help you. The only defense we have in a dying world is the living word of God. And it has no effect for or upon anyone else except the elect of God. Others will find it meaningless. They'll even hate it. They'll reject it. I'm, I'm tuned in to quite a, quite a few journals and, and uh, online Christian thinkers and so forth, theologians. And one of the popular up-and-coming theological thoughts, I guess postmodernism. I don't know, it has all kinds of weird little names that eggheads want to give things, is that because there are such needs within the lives of so many people in the world, we cannot accept the Bible as always culturally relevant. That's a damnable thought, may I say. Always remember, I've said it before, I'll say it again probably, and I'm going to say it right now. Criswell, W.A. Criswell, one of my heroes in the faith, was defending the inerrancy of Scripture. And he referenced those who were actually seminary teachers in the day. They were ultra-liberal, and they were drawing the minds of young seminary students away from the absolute truth of the Word of God. He referred to those seminary professors and others of like mind as half infidels at best. And he said, we're in, they believed they were inspired, that the Bible was inspired in spots, and they were inspired to pick out the spots. Of course, that's a lie. That brings me into Peter's message, 1 Peter. One of the resources I studied in the last couple of weeks regarding 1 Peter was a British author who wrote in the 1990s, in the late 90s. I think his copyright for his book was in 1999. And he said, in his preface to his book, in the foreword, he said, Peter writes to a persecuted church scattered across the cruel Roman Empire in the time of Nero, who took upon himself the task of persecuting and destroying Christians. This author went on to say, we don't know persecution in the Western culture, in the church, in these days, but however we can study how they were persecuted and we can look at ways that we are persecuted today in our culture. Well, you see, he lived in 19, he wrote that in 1999, or he copyrighted it then. 
He would change his tune if he lived in the Western culture today. 24 years later. The West has flipped culturally upside down. It has become, it has become the center of reprobation. And I will say this to you. I told you earlier, if you believe that Bible, you will be moved closer to God. But you are entering into a culture that if you move closer to God, you will by default move away from the culture in which we live. And it will require suffering. At some stage, at some point, in some degree, there will be suffering. I believe that God is using it to separate the true from the false in the last days, especially in the final days of the church. How then do we feel about our salvation? Do we understand it? About the God of our salvation? I've done a great deal of study on this particular subject. It's interesting to me how the greatest commentators and who wrote the commentaries and they still exist and, and will, will be around, I know, for the age of the church. And these great preachers and teachers of the 19th century and 18th century, they, they gave no space to the thought that man was anything more than a depraved and pitiful creature who is only at the mercy of God and cannot find God. God must find him. Who cannot control his soul because he's dead spiritually unless and until God causes him to be born again. Peter talks about that in a couple of weeks or so. To cause us to be born again. We can't rebirth ourselves spiritually. Which then causes us to collapse into the absolute truth of the blessed sovereignty of God. And in the 20th century, with our focus on entertainment and the development of of radio and then television and the movies and the silent movies and then the talking movies and all the way into what we have today, the streaming and the internet and all this other stuff. We were pulled away from the Understanding that God is absolutely sovereign, that his ways are above our ways, and that his thoughts are above our thoughts, and that we can never enter into his thoughts. We can never enter into his ways because he's God. And God is sovereign over all things, and we've sort of, we tried to humanize God through our era of entertainment. And man increasingly becomes his own God. And he, he thinks that he reaches the pinnacle of his own glory such that he could criticize God. 
so that we have, even within Christianity, people who think that in some ways God is weak or that in some ways God fails. God never fails. God's strength is absolute. Whatever is happening in anybody's life at any point in time is by the divine will and purpose of a sovereign God who will finally bring it all into culmination. And those who are his own will stand having been gathered from the ages of the ages in the past of mankind's history there to do exactly what God had purposed for us to do all along, which is namely give him the power, the honor, and the glory forever. We moved away from that time through the 20th century such that we would entertain ourselves with whatever thoughts we wanted to have. The Bible teaches us that our hearts are desperately wicked and that the imaginations of a man's heart and mind are only desperately wicked always. So the beautiful development of communication in the 20th century that could have been used and to some degree was used to declare the gospel of Jesus Christ has been overwhelmed by darkness so that people heap to themselves doctrines of demons and entertain themselves with it many times privately before a computer screen. And somewhere... And we were told it would happen. Mankind in general has forsaken his understanding in the Western culture, his understanding of the truth that God is absolutely sovereign. And you don't mess with God. We'll be learning that. The culmination of that judgment comes in a seven year period that quite possibly could start tomorrow. Or even later today. I don't know when. But never in the history of mankind have all of these things prophetically converged to make any thoughtful Bible student understand this must be the end of days. Peter writes from what he calls, from a place he calls, we'll see it later on, but in the study, he calls it Babylon. He writes from what he called Babylon. The word Babylon first appears in the form of Babel, Babel, at the Tower of Babel in Genesis. And it's where all the nations of the world gathered together in defiance of God's command after the flood to go out into the world and refill it, replenish it. They defied God. Their leader was a guy named Nimrod. They all spoke the same language. You understand, if you've ever been to Sunday school for any length of time, you understand the story, the account of the Tower of Babel. That was the beginning of Babel. Genesis 10.10 speaks of Nimrod and his kingdom that was called Babel or Babel. And it says the beginning of his kingdom was at Babel. That's where it started. 
Babel becomes Babylon. A great kingdom of Babylon develops. And then when we study the spiritual aspects of that kingdom, well, even the spiritual aspects of Babel itself, polytheism, deism projects itself out from the Tower of Babel. And so people now are carrying their their particular language, having come under the curse of languages, and they'll carry that being forced into the world, as God said they would be. But they also carry that rebellious thought, which Nimrod led the people into saying, let us make to ourselves our own name of deity. It's in Genesis 10 and 11. I don't like what God is telling us to do. I'm not going to submit to a God I cannot see. I will make to myself a God who satisfies me. Who makes things pleasant in my mind. I will create my own God. Now that curse, that spiritual curse of Babylon. Polytheism, gods and goddesses, which which makes fruition into paganism carries itself through all cultures until the end of it comes in the Revelation chapters 14 through 18. Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen. In Peter's day, the epicenter of Babylonianism was in the city of Rome. It was somewhere most likely in the middle 60s AD. The apostle Paul, in all likelihood, had already been killed. Nero had come to the throne. He let Rome burn, according to the ancient accounts, He played his violin while Rome burned so that he could blame the Christians with the destruction of Rome and give him free hand to seek to destroy Christianity. Christians ran everywhere. They scattered among the world and they carried their faith with them. But they came, they became despised and persecuted even to death because they were Christians. It is to that group of people Peter writes this first epistle. And the basic premise of 1 Peter is, yes, you'll suffer. Yes, you're persecuted because you're in Christ. But we have hope. No one else in this world has this hope. They only hope in now. They only hope in what there is here. And they are, without realizing it, of all men, most miserable. We have hope. And so this is the way Peter writes to the scattered elect. So let's, let's begin the study And you're going to find that Peter says the same thing that we've seen Christ has said. He said it in John said it in his gospel. 
Christ teaches it in both John and Luke. We recently have been through those Gospels. We've seen it in Paul's writings in the last few. Same thing. This is the foundation because, it, because our salvation rests on an absolutely sovereign God and there's nothing that I can do to save myself. Thus collapsing helpless into the arms of a sovereign God resting upon my Sabbath who is Christ. I give my soul. He takes my soul. My soul belongs to Him and He makes me to be saved. He causes me to be born again because of grace. This is the great rhetorical question of all saints of all the ages as we move from this world into the next, into the ages of the ages. And that rhetorical question is simply, why me? Oh God of all grace, sovereign above all things, tell me more of grace. How can I ever seek to understand and extract from an infinite mind the beauty of grace which was bestowed upon me Through the 20th century, we lost our definition of God in the human race. But the early Christians never lost that definition. We've seen it in all the writings of the New Testament we've been looking at. I've, I've been, 17 years I've been preaching through the Bible here. There's never been any section, verse, word of the Bible that denied the almightiness of God and our utter dependence upon Him that we might be saved only by His grace through His power plus nothing that I could do, not a thing that I could do. Just saved by grace which moves me to worship and to praise the almighty God who gave to me my salvation from before the foundation of the world who always had me in his mind how in the world what joins what joins time and space to the eternal existence of God we're going to see it right here so he writes to the elect and scattered they're different from Paul. The Apostle Paul, generally speaking, writes to a specific church. Peter, most likely with Paul having already been martyred, killed, writes to a large group of scattered Christians. So here's how he begins his letter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, an apostle of Jesus Christ, what are some of the things that I know about Peter? He wasn't such a good man. It seems as though he sort of made fun of his brother when his brother talked about having met the Messiah. And when Christ came onto the scene in Peter's life, he was such a man that Christ knew he would have to change him and then he would give him another name. 
He couldn't just stay Simon. Christ had to make him Petros. He had to make him Peter, the rock. Christ had to do it. When Christ was nearly dead, bleeding, being dragged mercilessly to the cross. At a time when Peter could have fell on his face and thanked his Lord for suffering in his behalf. When he could have done that, he cursed and swore against Christ. Now, I've been a rascal. I've done some bad things. I could stand here for hours and tell you all the times that I have broken the commandments. Well, <laughs> most of them. I know that there have been times that I didn't treat the Lord's day as holy as I should have. I know for a fact that I've disobeyed many times my parents and dishonored them. Surely there have been times when I wanted something that the other guy had. And I have borne false witness. How many times? I don't know. In my life. But there's one thing I've never done. I have never cursed and swore against Jesus Christ. I'm not beyond that. But thank God in heaven to this point in my life, I've never done that. Peter, with cursing and swearing, denied Jesus Christ. Now, 30 years later, he understands the forgiveness. He understands the weakness of human flesh. He understands personal failure. And yet he also understands the grace of God and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. And so he says, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. To the scattered elect of the dispersion. Ecclesiastes. To the elect. The elect. Ecclesia. Those who are called out. Ecclesia. That's, that's the Greek word for the church. The church doesn't refer to anything other than the people. The people whom God has called out for himself. The called out ones. Jesus said in John 6, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. And all who come to me, I will never ever cast him out. To the elect. And they're everywhere. Parapidemos. They are sojourners. Para, let me take the, this is, para means to be called alongside. Epi, the next of the Greek words in, in, in the total word here. Epi means upon. Demos comes from demos. It means the ones who are there. It could speak of citizenry, for example. In other words, my brother used to have a saying, everybody's got to be somewhere. And I thought, 
True. <laughs> so they are scattered to those who had to be somewhere. And they are called alongside and placed upon them. It's, it's by the purpose of God. To the elect who are scattered or the sojourners scattered. You're with them, they need you, but this is not your home. I've put you there for just now. Paul wrote to the Philippians and he said, our citizenship is in heaven. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the scattered elect of the diasporas, of the dispersion. Now, the diaspora, that, that, was a, that was a Greek word applied to the scattered tribes of Israel in the intertestament period. And the same thought, dia means through, sporos means seed. It speaks of the sowing of seed. Of the, you could say, you could say to the elect, scattered seed sowings, seed sowers. So that's what we're here for. That's what they're there for. We come to realize that they just happened, they didn't just happen to be there. They were there according to the purpose of God. As the elect to be called alongside and placed upon those among whom we live as seed scatterers. This is the church. This is what the church does. Then he identifies of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, well, Bithynia. Now, generally speaking, this is most of what would be called Turkey today. And these, generally speaking, are the areas where, call, where Paul was not called to go. <laughs> you remember the man from Macedonia. And so Paul then, he went west instead of going into Asia like he thought he would. Well, Peter writes then, Paul has pretty much immersed that part of the world where his missionary trips took him and where those churches grew. Paul has pretty much handled. But here, Peter writes to the others. I know where you are. God knows where you are. Paul has not necessarily been through there, but I'm writing to you. The Holy Spirit of God leads Peter to write to them, the scattered elect of the seed sowers, and they're where you thought they wouldn't have been. You know what? I'm not going to finish this sermon as I had designed it. Wayne Tarvin, an old preacher friend of mine, he said, my sermons are like a cigarette. I can put them out anywhere I want to. 
was a crude illustration of a day gone by, but uh, I'm about to take a final draw here and put this thing out. I've never held a lighted cigarette in my hand. I wouldn't know what to do with it. I'd probably die choking to death. Anyway, four young men, others, a watershed event, life is changing for you. It won't ever be the same. And you're going into a world that is increasingly dark. And when I use that term, I speak of spiritually dark. A world that will increasingly reject Christianity and Christians. We have our hopes and our dreams and we want to fit in and we want to, we want to increase who we are and be great things. But let me tell you what. What is it? What have you gained if you've gained the whole world and lost your soul? Christ asked that question to his disciples. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? The great challenge with that book that you've been given is to read it and live by it. There is no other truth but that truth. All other so-called truths will disappear and collapse into another man-made truth but the word of our God will always stand. And today you should commit yourself along with the rest of us to be a Christian. I mean a Christian in these last days, though it may cost us something. Though we may suffer even persecution, yet we have hope. This is what Peter talks about. We'll stop there. Let's pray. With your heads bowed and eyes closed, let me say to you, if you're here today without Christ, if God calls you, you'll know it. and You don't have to leave that way. We have deacons and their wives ready to pray with you. Just across the hall as you exit, you'll see them standing in the doorways. That you might come to Christ. They're... Also there, if you're here today and God leads you to come and be a part of our congregation, they'll take care of all the details for you. They'll walk you through that and pray with you about it. But for now, let's all stand and we'll be dismissed in a word of prayer.